1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
2: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
3: Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time.
2: Welcome to this special edition of the Sinica Podcast, recording live from the Hong Kong International Literary Festival. The Sinica Podcast is produced in partnership with SupChina. Visit supchina.com and subscribe to our Access newsletter for a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Wu, and I'm joined, of course, by Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of Sup China, and a man who's pretty sure he can still secure an appointment with the Trump administration with just a couple of more <laughs> firing. On, I mean, yeah, who knows? Uh, he'll be in office for just a couple of weeks, but uh, that's good enough, right? Jeremy, speak to people, about not you? The revolving door yes. will still be there. Uh, Kaiser, is
1: still so confident that American democracy is going to hold up, you know? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm not. Well, we're thrilled to be talking to two old friends of ours from Beijing, Paul Iyer and Anand Krishnan, both of whom spent much of their professional lives reporting from Beijing and are some of the most astute observers of contemporary China who I know, and uh, especially good when it comes to offering insightful comparisons to Asia's other colossus, its neighbor across the Himalayas.
1: The multi-talented Pallavi Aya has written a lot on China. Smoke and Mirrors, her debut work published in 2008, is a fantastic book that combines reportage, memoir, and travelogue, and is liberally sprinkled with astute observations, often hysterically funny, about Beijing uh, and China and her adventures uh, in the space between India and China. Uh, Pallavi's also written a novel called Chinese Whiskers, which is about the adventures of two cats named Soybean and Tofu, who live in a traditional courtyard house in 21st century Beijing. Her book, Choked, from 2016, is about air pollution and uh, air pollution in, in Beijing and New Delhi, two of the world's mo- most polluted cities. Or well, they were at the time, in any case. Now, I believe it's actually uh, San Francisco after the summer of wildfires. <laughs> but it was very funny to see Californians uh, uh, checking the AQI every day for people who've lived in Delhi or Beijing. Anyway, along the way, Pallavi also wrote the Lonely Planet Guide, China for the Indian Traveler. Uh, and most recently she edited a volume of prose, poetry and polemic called A Thousand
2: Cranes for India. Anant Krishnan has been on our program many times now, he usually alas, for some flare-up on the Sino-Indian border, which he's got to explain and walk through the whole damn history of the McMahon Line and the LAC and the 62 Sino-Indian War. Uh, but today we're going to spare him all of that. Anant was China Bureau Chief for the Hindu and Associate Editor for India Today in Beijing. He left China in 2018 after nearly a decade there. He was a Brookings India Fellow and is now back at the Hindu. His debut book is called India's China Challenge, A Journey Through China rise and what it means for India. So today we're not going to be talking about the specifics of conflict in Ladakh or the
1: Doklam Plateau, uh, but instead we're going to talk about some of the big picture questions uh, about popular understanding and misunderstanding going in both directions. So uh, let's dive in. Um, Anant, you've talked about uh, both the curiosity about China in India and the lack of information about China that you encounter among your compatriots. What is the barrier? If your compatriots are curious, what stops them from being well-informed on China?
3: Well, uh, first of all, thank you, uh, Kaiser, Jeremy, and great to see you, Pallavi, and thanks to everyone at the Hong Kong Literature Fest. I think all of us are pretty bummed that we couldn't be there in, in person, but it's uh, great to be part of this event uh, virtually. Um, I think it's, it's an interesting question, um, uh, Jeremy. I think if I can use the media as one example, I think the fact that, uh, you and Kaiser are in conversation with, uh, I just did a, a back of the envelope calculation that you are currently speaking with 20% of the entire Indian press corps that served in Beijing in the last <laughs> 20 years tells you that, <laughs> it tells you that uh, how underinvested we've been in, uh, covering the country. I think that, uh, part of it is that I think the media in India is really uh, domestic-driven in so many ways. I mean, in, it is understandable in one sense because there's so many stories to cover in this country. But at the same time, I think there's been a, a history of, of really not paying attention. And I think it's inexcusable, especially when, when China is concerned, because uh, I don't think there's a more important relationship, uh, whether in a in a good way or a bad way. And I think this year has reminded us of of that, both in terms of uh, the pandemic and the boundary crisis as well. I think part of it is just how the media in India functions. Uh, I think in the last few years, uh, even when it comes to domestic news, there's been a really worrying trend of opinion replacing reportage. Uh, people aren't sending reporters into the field even in India. Uh, so I think it's not just a China problem. But I think uh, in China, of course, the language is another barrier uh, I think, uh, uh, Pallavi was really an exception in, in being a, a fluent Mandarin speaking correspondent who, who was there, uh, at the, at the time of the Olympics. Uh, and I think she would attest to the fact that Indian media organizations don't train their reporters in language before sending, sending them out. It's something that you have to do on your own initiative and your own time. Uh, it really is a mindset problem. And it's something that I really lament in the book. Uh, and, uh, I'm not holding my breath for it to change. Uh, uh since i think it's a broader structural problem and not china specific but it, but it's something that really uh, worries me jeremy
2: uh, i'm not saying with you for a second your your book actually talks about mutual ignorance uh, i know from experience that there's plenty of chinese ignorance about india but i would also venture to suggest that there's not much by way of curiosity about india either um how much do you fault uh the chinese media for failing to address this ignorance
3: no, for sure. But I think it's, as far as China is concerned, there is also obviously, I think yeah. it's understandable that there's more curiosity in India because the relationship, I think China is more important to India than the other way around. That's a reality, as much as people in India wouldn't want to hear that. Um So I think it is it is natural that there's going to be a skew given the, the, the weight of China and the importance that it occupies in the world today. Uh, but from my own experience, uh, in the last 10 years that I've been Uh, In China, I think that is beginning to change in some ways. I left feeling somewhat optimistic, especially because of uh, young tech entrepreneurs. I think India is a r- really, really big market for them. It was until this year, at least, before India went out banning uh, Chinese apps. So I left. I left in 2018, coming away somewhat optimistic that younger Chinese people in the tech sector, more Chinese journalists, were trying to move to India, even if they couldn't get visas. Uh, so I think it is beginning to change in China, uh, although in, in in pretty small steps.
1: Pallavi, you've done your share of uh, Vox Pops uh, in your time as a reporter in China, asking ordinary people about the impressions of India. Can you give us a sense of the range of responses you tended to get? And perhaps I could ask you to include some of the more memorable, if not representative, responses that you've gotten over the years.
0: Yes, well, Vox Pops was really one stock in trade. And I spent about seven or eight years in Beijing reporting. And every time we'd have a high-level visit, um, either from the Indian side coming to China or vice versa, I'd be sent off um, to with a little mic um, to sort of wander around some of the neighborhoods in Beijing and ask them, you know, what do you think of India? First thing that comes to your mind. And um, most of the answers ran along pretty standard lines. Um, I would get uh, Buddhism a lot and, uh, oh, it's a Buddhist country. And of course, (laughs) Buddhism had died out in India more than a thousand years ago. Um, I would get a lot of Hindi uh, film song singing uh, because particularly amongst a particular demographic, Hindi movies had been amongst the first foreign films that were allowed to be shown publicly in China. So through the 70s and 80s, a certain vintage of uh, movies from Bollywood, which in India had been shot in the 50s and 60s and had very strong socialist themes um, in which, um, you know, rich girl falls in love with poor boy and it all sort of ends in doom. But there was uh, this kind of sense of inequality and socialism in these uh, movies, which was deemed... uh, acceptable. And these became hugely popular. Um, and the result was that many people knew the lyrics by heart. And I had uh, tons of footage of people bursting into song and dance uh, as uh, as good as any Bollywood actor or actress uh, uh, in in the streets of Beijing um, and rehashing these old songs that had more or less disappeared from the imagination back in India. Um, I got some very uh, blunt responses. India, poor country, or oh, you don't have a one-child policy, uh, Um, that's really bad. Um, I I heard things about rat temples and all kinds of exoticism. Um, You know, so far, so standard. But I remember um, thinking that something had perhaps changed when in 2007, I think it was, when Hu Jintao was going to India. I was wandering around the Hutong that I lived in, and I came across this old bicycle repair man called Lao Yang. And I asked him, um, you know, Lao Yang, can you uh, um, tell me what you think about when you think about India? And he was very reluctant to answer and was like, no, 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 I don't know anything about India. I don't want to be on television. And I was like, no, come on, you know, really doesn't matter. We don't need any kind of panditri. Just what's the first thing that you think about? And he kept refusing, and I finally sort of managed, managed to badger him enough to agree. And um, he turned around and said, "Um, well, I really know very little, but I do know that the telecom policy in India is very advanced. And you know in China we have a duopoly uh, but in India you have all this free choice when it comes to choosing your mobile phone network and this is something that China should really learn from India and I was blown away by this because I'd been expecting the Buddhism the rats the poverty you know all the sort of usual tropes um, and suddenly here I got this uh, informed uh, kind of soliloquy on the telecom policy and you know it was indicative um, at some level of how things were shifting and you were getting reports in the Chinese media on a slightly broader broader range of topics as well. And the whole sort of new economy and India rising as an IT power and things was something that was gradually beginning to be acknowledged um, in China. So, I mean, there's still, uh, I would say this was a minority view and the majority view continued to be largely negative, you know, either ignoring India altogether or sort of largely negative flaring up when there were flashpoints along the border and so on. Um, but uh, but 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 there was a slight broadening.
2: That uh, the the whole confusion over Buddhism and Hin- Hinduism is just so bizarre to me. It's it's something I've encountered so frequently. Uh, anyway, if I think anyone who spends a, a bit of time in China knows how fond Chinese people are—not just the elites, but even ordinary people—as as your vox pops sort of sample size shows—but of using India as a sort of foil. Uh, sure. India is a democracy, but you know, look what a mess it is. Look at the state of the infrastructure. All those people on top of the trains. It's always the trains. Um, but anyone, you know, of course, any anyone who, as you say, who wants to defend the one-child policy, all these sites, India. Uh, it's the go-to case for why democracy supposedly would never work. Absolutely.
0: Right? So, Russia, Russia and India. Right.
2: Exactly. Region. Russia post ninety-one, right, and then India. um yeah. A couple of questions though. What are some of the 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 usual ways in which Indian people respond to that common critique coming from China. And and what do Chinese people, I'm sorry, what do Indian people make of of Chinese authoritarianism? Because I've come across Indians who are unapologetically admiring of it and and want that kind of technocratic authoritarian rule. Uh, I've also come across Indians, many more of them, I should say, who have a very exaggerated idea of the extent of Chinese political control in everyday life. Um, so maybe give us your sense, Pallavi, you first, and, and then Anath, back to you.
0: I've always said that, you know, in India, the reactions to China tend to swing between pride and prejudice, Uh. Uh, but based on very little uh, um, information, I've been something that Anand pointed out right at the beginning. um, In terms of actual knowledge about China, there's a huge lacuna. Um, uh, I, I hadn't jumped in on the very first question, but just to point out that when I moved to Beijing in 2002, I was one of only two journalists that was covering this whole rise of China at a point when the combined population of the two countries was you know about a third of the world's population, and we didn't have any direct flights even at the time that linked India and China. It was absolutely absurd. The only way to get from Beijing to uh, uh, to Delhi was on an Ethiopian Airways flight um, that used to go from Delhi to Delhi to Addis Ababa and stop over uh, from Beijing to Addis Ababa and stop over in Delhi. Um, so you know there's this ridiculous lack of actual real information, but there is an obsession and a great amount of interest in it. So it creates a kind of contradiction where everybody is obsessed with China, but actually knows very little about it. Um, uh, On the Pride and Prejudice, I mean, on the one hand, I think you've got, uh, you know, middle class Indians that are just drooling at the idea of India transforming itself into China. And China has very much become the benchmark because it's also quite accessible. So when they think about what their idea of an ideal city would be, what they would want cities like Delhi and Mumbai to be transformed into, what they're looking at is Shanghai, you know, uh, because it's, it's, it's something that's um, that's so modern and uh, glittering and feeds into all their fantasies of sort of beggar-free, pothole-free cities. Uh, but at the same time, it's something that's, that's, that's relatively close. I mean, if China can do it, we can do it. It's not like saying, let's transform Mumbai into New York or into London. Um, certainly amongst the business classes and industrialists, there is a kind of envy of uh, the lack of problems, supposedly, that exist in China with disciplining labor. And uh, some very unsavory sentiments have come across, including, you know, oh, if only India could be like China, because, you know, people, these labor, they only really understand the stick, the danda, what they really want is someone to kind of beat them. And, you know, then all our problems would be solved. Uh, But then on the other hand, it also becomes an excuse, because when you show that India is underperforming in a a whole range of different areas, it's like, oh, but, you know, we are free and we are democratic. And um, therefore, we cannot be expected to really match China it's comparing apples to oranges, so it also kind of ends up giving a free pass for poor governance, uh, which I think is quite uh, interesting because we often tend to kind of um, associate democracies uh, with uh, good governance, uh, that because people will be more responsive to the needs of people. But in India, I think you often end up having a counterintuitive state of affairs where the 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 democracy, because it focuses so much on process, um, the legitimacy of these governments comes from the very fact of their having been elected rather than them fulfilling their promises or delivering uh, good governance and public goods. Um, So we end up with a very counterintuitive situation where China's authoritarian government, uh, where where the legitimacy to the government actually comes from delivering growth and delivering uh, various other uh, goals, uh, can sometimes be more responsive um, than a democracy like India.
1: Um, Anand, instead of uh, tackling the same question, let us let me ask you this. Um, India's political authority, Modi, the BJP, derives from a uh, widely recognized democratic process. It has electoral legitimacy. Um, some say that China's, on the other hand, the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, their legitimacy derives from actually getting things done, that China's yeah. leadership has uh, performance legitimacy.
3: Uh, and always, they said, yeah.
1: often... Uh, yeah, often use this argument. I mean, there's a one of the more trollish of the um, uh, uh, Chinese state media journalists, whenever China gets criticized on Twitter, often replies with uh, a simple tweet saying, high-speed trains, um, which kind of sums things up. Um, uh, so how does this idea, can you talk about the idea of performance legitimacy in India, uh, Anand?
3: I can, I can, I can, I can guess, I can guess. But, uh, but, but, but no, but I think it's interesting that I think that, I, I think that notion, notions of legitimacy are changing, I think, all over the world. Um, I think that in China too. I mean, I would question, the 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 conventional wisdom and the premise that we all still hold on to that it's only because that it's only because the 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 communist party delivers high g d p growth rates that uh they enjoy legitimacy. i think those things are changing i think there's other aspects coming to it in terms of nationalism uh in both countries the way people look at uh uh, who is that best uh, sort of representative of of their values um, and i think that in india as well uh, i think prime minister modi is a, is a good example for the fact that he was elected easily in 2019 after presiding over five years of of a disastrous uh, economic uh, tenure uh, in which included uh, self-inflicted goals own goals like uh, this this demonetization of currency notes that happened overnight and then again, if you come to 2020 and, and the way India has handled uh, COVID-19, the fact that you had a lockdown that was announced with just a four-hour window and you had uh, tens of thousands of people who had to walk thousands of kilometers home, some of whom would died on the way. Every opinion poll that I've seen shows that he's been completely, his, his approval ratings are as high as they were. Uh, the election results that we had two days ago in Bihar uh, strongly point to the fact that he remains extraordinarily popular. Uh, so I think it is quite interesting. I feel notions of legitimacy are changing everywhere around the world, uh, where it's not just, uh, I think it's a, it's a complicated question and I'm not the most qualified to answer it, but I think the way people vote, even in where both of you are, Jeremy and Kaiser, uh, it, it, it leads you to, it leads you to, I mean, it leads you to sort of ponder that it, it's complicated how people look at how their interests are best represented. I don't think it comes down to one thing. And I think even in China, uh, it's something I I mentioned in the book where I speak to a lot of people, uh, Chinese intellectuals, who look at why Xi Jinping has been governing the way he has been as reflecting a sense that it was inevitable that he has to turn to nationalism in some way, shape, or form uh, to create a kind of ideological tether uh, to to the people. And I think, and, and that is reflecting in a lot of uh, China's actions in the last few years. And I think it's not exclusive to China alone. You see that in India as well. You see that in much of the world. So I think it's 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 fluid and it's changing. And I think it's it's much more uh, complex than I think the, the the kind of assumptions that we have, especially as far as China is concerned. That if GDP falls below X. There's going to be unrest and the party's in trouble. I think it's more complicated than that.
2: Uh, Nationalism is something I want to get to in a little bit. Uh, I have a couple of questions specifically about that, you know, looking at Chinese and Indian nationalisms. But uh, Pallavi, first, I I want to ask you, I remember when we spoke some years back uh, after your first book came out, actually, uh, I guess it was more than a decade ago, you had a kind of litmus test when thinking about China and India. And that was the question, would you rather be born in China or in India? I mean, you complicated a bit, but can you talk about how you answered that back then and maybe what your answer was? would be today, seven or eight years or decades or so later, whether that's changed at all.
0: So I think... um... My answer has not changed uh, in the sense that what I said in the book, and I still hold by that now, is that your answer to whether, you, whether I would rather be born Indian or Chinese, that's how I phrased it in the book, would very much depend on where I were located um, on the sort of socioeconomic um, scale of things. Um, and I remember sort of looking at it by different case studies, saying, for example, were I a sanitation worker, somebody who was cleaning toilets? um you know uh, i think i would probably uh, choose to be chinese because i think i would ultimately have a better chance of being literate of being clothed of being fed and most importantly a better chance of upward social mobility on the other hand if i were middle class and i in india for example could provide the private means uh, i had the private means to circumvent the the failure of public goods uh, so for example i don't get municipal water but i can dig my own private uh, tube well in the garden, or I don't really rely on the police to protect me, but I can have my own security guards, um, uh, which is what a lot of middle class, upper, upper middle class Indians do, I think my answer would be different. Um, so you know I, I in 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 that case i think i might choose to be Indian because india would afford me uh, a, a lot of freedoms that i would not have in china but i also think that it's possible to turn that on its head because uh, it's also possible to say that if you are poor what you you don't have much but you at least have the vote and the vote can be powerful and in india it's been shown that the vote is actually appreciated the most by poor people uh, in that uh, when you look at demographics of who votes it's overwhelmingly the poor who vote um, because in some ways you know that's what they have that's the power that they have to force the government to protect them in some way uh, you can't have these kind of slum clearance projects that you do in China you can't just you know over overnight have people uh, move, move move away the fact that in India you know you've had all these land acquisition deals that have been held up by very poor people often and they do have that power to uh, that they hold over say even big industrialists mm. Mm. Um Um, So it's very hard really to come up with very definitive answers on this. But I think what living in China taught me is really that in some ways ideology is, is worthless and it's very difficult to have a priori answers to these questions and that the lived experience counts much more. And this differs from individual to individual and circumstance to circumstance. Sure, sure. So I think um, on average, probably um, Indian, you know, a Chinese is better off in terms of the standards of living and also on the human development index. And this is something to keep in mind. So if you're looking at nutrition, maternal mortality, female literacy, all of those things, you know, you're probably better off in China. But as a journalist and an intellectual and a liberal, I feel like I'm better off as an Indian. Um, So, uh, yeah, that's a tough one to answer in a definitive way.
2: Although I think I would I would answer it just as you did. Uh, Anant, what about you? I think you would answer it a bit differently.
3: I would. I mean, it's a great question that I first, I think I first read uh, in one of Pallavi's writings before I moved to China. And it's a question that stayed with me because I think it's a it's a, it's a really good question to ask. And I, and I like that because it made me think through so many things about living in China these last few years. And I really liked what Pallavi just said, the one line she said where, uh, it depends on your lived experience. And thinking through that question for me, I found so many exceptions on both ends of the spectrum uh, that uh, th- that I found quite fascinating. And I think the other point that I would just add to what uh, Pallavi said is that the one thing that I really took away I think from China was the fact that within China, the disparities, the regional differences are so incredible uh, and that applies to India too. That in in some ways, uh, for me, looking at both countries uh, at a national level, uh, at a 40,000 feet level, in many ways, uh, in many ways, doesn't really capture, I think, uh, the the lived experience. Uh, and I think that Pallavi is absolutely right. That there's no question, if you look at standard of living, uh, how China has eliminated uh, poverty, if you're at the lowest end of the economic ladder, no question that uh, you wouldn't have the struggles in China that so many people in India have. But I think that if you bring in issues of identity, it gets a little more complicated, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, the, the regional disparities. For example, uh, th- I mean, the uh, easy example to think of is if you are a poor Muslim, uh, would, you, uh, would you, if you were in a southern Indian state or, or, or Kerala, where I live in Tamil Nadu vis-a-vis Xinjiang, I think it would be a it would be a no-brainer for many people. And right. uh, I think at the other end of the spectrum as well, I would agree with Pallavi that as an Indian, if I was moderately well-off, I think you would say India because you cherish these institutions that we're used to, whether it's a free press or whether it's a judiciary. So I would think that I'd say a moderately well-off Indian would choose India, but a moderately well-off Chinese would choose China because they would they would emphasize different values. And I don't think they would look at India as a place where uh, they would like to move. But what I would say where they would both agree on is uh, a moderately well-off Indian and Chinese, if you gave them the choice, they'd probably choose the US or the UK. (laughs) That's what I would say. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> that that probably applies to quite, quite a lot of the world. Um, let's talk mm-hmm. about the status of women in both countries. And, Pallavi, back to you. Both countries have had their share of uh, bad press about uh the status and treatment of women we don't need to go through the details they're kind of different uh, but both countries can also hold up examples of women who made it two heads of state in india's case and in china's quite a number of billionaires even though women are appallingly underrepresented in government um, but maybe we can use the same question about where you'd rather be born uh, you know which country would you rather be born in as a woman? Anath doesn't
2: get to answer Mm. this one, though. Only.
0: Why not? Why not? These days, gender is very fluid. No, but uh, I I was talking about, um, yeah, I think in, um, I was, I think the one thing that really struck me when I moved to China was how I found them very empowered. And this was coming from a situation when everything I had read about China before moving to China would have led me to, think the opposite because I was very used to hearing about the kind of, uh, the you know, foot binding and the deep patriarchy in China and and so on. Um, and But I think the thing that struck me the most was just the physical difference in how women in Chinese cities occupied space compared to uh, women in India and in Indian cities. And, you know, I was so used to, like, for example, in Delhi or whatever, just when you're walking on the streets, uh, ending up sort of looking down a lot of the time because you don't want to make eye contact with people because it's almost like you will invite uh, what we very quaintly in India call eve teasing yeah, which essentially means people whistling passing comments you know but it gets worse it can end up with groping and things like that as well and you know just the fact that Chinese women were sort of unapologetic about the fact that there they were out in public and they expanded and they um, they wore the clothes they wanted to wear and you could see just in the body language a kind of confidence that you do not see in India uh, that made me wonder about all of these, uh, you know, comparisons and the fact that I'd heard about how oppressed and depressed um, Chinese women were and just seeing the kinds of jobs that they did of the fact that, uh, you know, you had women taxi drivers. I I encountered women bus drivers, women conductors. Um, I traveled across China as a journalist without once being questioned about uh, you know my being a woman or what i was doing over there and the only time i really came across uh, anything to the contrary was when i was interviewing an indian businessman in beijing uh, who kept asking me what you were doing what i was doing in in china and i kept saying that i'm work well i work here i'm a journalist uh, and he kept saying but what are you really doing here and i kept saying well i'm a journalist i'm here i work for the the hindu and this conversation went on and then finally i realized that i think he just didn't understand what i was doing in terms of the fact of my personal life like so i had to bas- i basically said to him well my husband is here at which point he was like oh you're here with your family which translates as so why didn't you say that it suddenly I kind of made sense to him whereas until then I just it didn't make sense to him that you know I was out here on my own so I mean you know there's very um, obvious um, differences in that sense and then this was also backed up of course by the data I mean um, if you looked at the Chinese uh, the participation of Chinese women in the labor force it was higher than the uh, global average whereas in India it was much below the global average. I think today in India it's something like 29% of women uh, work and uh, as opposed to about 60% of women. It's been going down in both countries, uh, interestingly but there's still a huge gulf. Um, uh, What else? Um, uh, Literacy. um, Female literacy at the time that I was in China. Again, female literacy in India has improved since then. But at the time less than 50% of Indian women were literate and I think something like 98% of Chinese women were literate. and So that lends itself to an amazing kind of empowerment. I mean, the the most insidious damage that you can do to a human being is deprive them of an education, uh, because it kind of robs you of your own sense of self worth, uh, you know, which I think is also linked into just that occupying physical spaces that I was talking about, how confident you are in your own place as a human being as part of civil society being out there. And, you know, it was driven home at so many levels. I used to represent the Confederation of Indian Industry in, uh, in Beijing as well. And I remember we had these uh, delegations that would come from India and they would bring gifts to give to the people that they would be meeting. And uh, CII, as the organization would call, was always sending gifts of ties of ties and then we would meet with women and they were like oh my god uh, and I remember emergency phone calls back saying we need something else we we can't just have ties but these were just like the kind of underlying uh, you know assumptions that you often came across none of which is to say that you know you did not have patriarchy and you did not have male preference in China and you did have a very skewed gender ratio as well but I do think that some of this harks back to the communist revolution and that some of its teachings broke down the worst amongst the discriminations I mean Mao famous Declared that women hold up half the sky, and under his regime, women were given the right to divorce, to own land, etc., etc. And I think, most importantly, for the first time, people were educated into a formal belief regarding gender equality. So, I mean, of course, it's debatable how much the lives of women actually improved under the kind of authoritarian arguably megalomaniacal state project that Mao oversaw. And obviously, the Communist Party's boosting of female labor force participation was a utilitarian endeavor that was aimed at increasing national productivity rather than expanding women's choices. And, you know, today, women's choices... Very coercive, and today women's choices also remain uh, depressed um, in 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 China. But I do think that you know people were educated into this formal belief regarding gender equality, and like in um, uh, and so like in other aspects, the fact that China had a revolution meant that it broke more strongly with its kind of feudal patriarchal past than India did. And um and 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 yeah, I think uh, some of what we see in gender is very evident.
2: I I'm so reminded right now of a book that I read last year uh by Peter Hessler his new book on on the Egyptian uh on the Arab Spring experience and um how he he talks about really the incompleteness of the Egyptian revolution the lack of an, of an, of a revolution uh and is constantly you know uh talking about China as sort of the foil there and it it really resonates with what you've just said earlier you talked about social mobility upward social mobility and how you would sort of chalk that up in China's column as as being better a lot of, I mean, it, it, we, we inevitably have to talk about caste. It's a sensitive topic, obviously, when it comes to any discussion about India. It also comes up a lot when making comparisons to China with a lot of people arguing that China might not have a formal caste system, but there's certainly a lot of classism, a lot of regionalism, colorism in China as well. Uh, and others arguing that China's lack of a caste system not an explicit, uh, pronounced one anyway, is one of China's big advantages over India. Ananth uh, Pallavi, what are your what are your thoughts on this?
3: Sure, yeah, I think uh, I would add to some of the Vox pops that uh, Pallavi mentioned early on. Uh, the one that I always uh, that struck with me was that uh, you know when you're from India, the first thing I would hear is you know India is a big country. And then the second thing I would hear is, yes, forecasts, in a way that they were kind of telling me that, <laughs> that you know, you have. And then I, and then there would come the question, which one are you? Uh, so I think that that's one thing that a lot of people in China associate India with. Uh, and I would uh, I mean, I think that that really uh, struck me as well. I think one um takeaway that I had and I kept thinking about as well uh, during my time in China is how much of a barrier it still is in India in in so many ways, uh, and the fact that uh, and I would completely agree with uh, what uh, Pallavi said on social mobility. And I, for me, there's no question that this is the number one overbearing, huge reason why. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for me, it's 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 crystal clear. Uh, and I think the fact that China was able to break away from it. Uh, it's, again, it's an uncomfortable thing because a lot of it, I suppose, happened in the sixties. Uh, and, and it came at, at a huge cost, uh, to people as well. Uh, but I think one consequence of that, uh, I don't know what Pallavi would think, but I mean, I think it's a fact that one consequence of that, of that turbulence and of trying to shatter old ideas of, of society, uh, was that, uh, when China opened up in the 80s and 90s, you didn't have this whole barrier holding them back that we are still dealing with in a very painful way. Uh, and in India, we have so much, I mean, so, so far to go, even if legally, uh, even if uh, we have legally done what we have to do. The fact is it's so ingrained in society. I mean, the easiest uh, barometer of that is just go through the, 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 uh, the marriage advertisements in, in any Indian newspaper today, and uh, you'll see it everywhere.
2: Yeah, I mean, still explicitly, even though... Very explicit. uh, Okay.
0: Like they will ask for people of a particular caste. I think it's most explicit in the marriage, uh, in the area of marriage. You won't find that in, for example, at least explicitly uh, in, uh, in, you know, for employment uh, criteria, for example, they will not, they will very. I mean, never as far as I know, list caste as a requirement. But for marriage, it's very common.
2: Hmm. Hmm. And there are no legal impediments to that?
0: For marriage, no, because it's a personal choice. You can choose that you want to marry anybody, you know, a tall person, a short person, a person from this caste, a person from that community, this religion. Uh, yeah.
2: And, and and there's no sort of opprobrium. I mean, like if, if you were to do that uh, in, in the U.S., if, if you were to, to explicitly say, I only want to, uh, to marry somebody from a um uh, sort of a waspy upper you know Harvard graduate or I, I think you would get called out at least no on problem social at all. Media. in
0: fact it's very much the, the opposite if you ha- intercaste marriages are the one that often draw opprobrium
2: uh, no.
0: <laughs> So no but if I might jump in over here you know yeah. I think one thing that really struck me, um, Kaiser when I lived in China was how when you looked at lowly jobs um, they were very much um, sort of adjectives rather than nouns as descriptions of their jobs rather than the essence of who they were. For example, if you were a toilet cleaner, that just meant you cleaned toilets. It was just describing what you did. It was an adjective. It was not, I am a toilet cleaner, as in that is my essence. That's what I've been born into. Uh, it's a very big difference. And I again think, you know, back to the communist revolution, um, that everyone of a certain generation had done physical labor and, you know, hauled, shaked, and done all of that. And uh, I think all the new richest parents had sort of scrubbed and cleaned as much as my IE. He did, And there was an awareness as a result of that, that, that there was a somewhat thin line separating um, uh, you from another person who's doing another kind of job. And I think, you know, in India, this line of, of between purity and pollution between certain kinds of jobs and certain other kinds of jobs or st- statuses and castes was almost sacred. And it was so rarely crossed as to make empathy across that line very difficult, make empathy across the lines of who was served, uh, you know, those who were served and those who cleaned and those who had had things cleaned and those who were served. Empathy across those lines, um, uh, very difficult, was almost a very thick and sacred line. And I also think, you know, historically, China has been a more egalitarian society than India. Um, The examinations to the imperial civil services, for example, were theoretically open, theoretically at least to anyone, uh, and underpinned by the idea um, that merit, rather than birth was the correct criterion by which to uh, determine a person's future so you know i think that had a greater acceptability already um, in china And uh, I think one of the anecdotes that I always have which has dropped jaws in India is about my uh, landlord, Mr. Wu. I call him Mr. Wu. I changed his name. I lived in an old courtyard house in a hutong in Beijing and uh, my landlord was apparently quite rich. He owned three or four of these courtyards. But whenever I had a plumbing problem, which was frequent given that the plumbing wasn't great uh, in the hutong neighbourhoods, I would call him and he would come on this little motorbike thing that he had himself and insist on repairing the toilet because he didn't want to spend money calling a plumber. But the idea in India of, uh, of you know, a landlord kind of going to people's homes to fix their toilets uh, would have been really quite inconceivable. So something just as simple. But then Mr. Wu, you know, had spent 10 years in Inner Mongolia, basically, you know, cleaning manure and carrying it around. So uh, so he might have been rich now. P- he
1: ha- if I yeah. may... Um, um, interrupt isn't some of the the sort of force of the the caste system and this this sort of quite specific classification of people connected to Hinduism uh, w- which leads me to another uh, similar question which is that uh, I've heard in China quite a lot that what holds India back is religion um, and I now live in Nashville, Tennessee which is the bu- buckle of the Bible belt where a lot of people don't believe in COVID-19 uh, <laughs> and seem to be held back by religion <laughs> So, um, but does this does this argument make any sense? Is there too much religion in India and, and, and do religious beliefs hold back development? You
0: know Jeremy you're asking an atheist. You're asking an atheist. So I'm, you know, I can't claim uh, a, a complete lack of bias in my answer over there. Well,
1: this is an atheist show, so feel But India is an overwhelmingly
0: religious country. Overwhelmingly religious country. Okay, let me say this. I do think that, you know, religion does not necessarily have to be a terrible and regressive force. And I think particularly um, religion, a religion like Hinduism, which in it uh, has a sense of capaciousness and it has a possibility for plurality which many other religions do not have so you know uh, hinduism i think if you really looked uh, to its roots would have the ability to be different from some of the other more monotheistic religions in accepting differences and in presenting diversity of thought opinion argumentation all of that as fundamental to the religion itself and therefore i think india and a religious india has the capacity to be democratic and has the capacity um, to allow its wonderful diversity despite the existence of religion but you also always with religions have the possibility of it being abused um, and the possibility of it being used as a tool of hatred and you know othering uh, others. And we're seeing a brand of Hindu nationalism today, which I think is very antithetical to the actual roots of Hinduism, which would define itself in very narrow terms um, uh, against Hinduism. Uh, against diversity and kind of be a force towards homogenization Um, and certainly is not doing um, India any favors when it comes to its development but uh, uh, at a larger point I do think Indian society remains very religious it did not have the communist revolution once again and as a result I think it has a much more it there is a uh, disjuncture between its constitution which is a liberal constitution that was kind of grafted on Emerging from this kind of European enlightenment as the result of uh, British colonialism. And then the sort of morality, the social, the, the dominant social morality of average people in India, which is very religious, scriptural based and continues to not be um, liberal at all. And so you've kind of got a liberal constitution and an illiberal uh, population. And we see a a kind of constant um, uh, tussle between these two, which explains, I think, a lot of the contradictions that you see in modern India today.
2: Pallavi, you've just explained many of the contradictions in, in modern India. It's just what a fantastic answer. Uh, speaking of religion, I mean, you know, so you were talking, of course, about the, the, the nationalistic credo of Hindutva. Uh, I want to talk about Chinese nationalism and Indian nationalism. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about the rise of Chinese nationalism for, what, I guess, uh, 30 years from now. I, I I am certainly no fan of nationalism in, in any form. Uh, I wonder, though, whether you would agree with me that, that, that Chinese nationalism, which doesn't have a religious core around which it can cohere, uh, which doesn't have either a, a kind of specific ethnic or religious hatred, uh, a, a kind of othering of, of, of people uh, and, you know, making of an enemy. It it just maybe lacks the virulence of, of Hindutva. Um, as I, it's kept mainly online. I mean, we don't see a lot of Chinese nationalists say, burning buses or, are, are attacking people on trains oh.
0: Well you have the anti-Japanese you have the anti-Japanese sentiment Kaiser and you know Absolutely. that has been quite ugly sometimes including burning things and boycotting things Sure but that's but, yes, that's But perhaps not, Anand would like to directed, come in here
2: right it's outwardly directed yeah. I mean you know there is what 170 million Muslims living in India and and uh you know if you look at uh at Modi's home state of Gujarat and what happened there Anyway, um, my 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 question.
1: The the state takes takes care of that in China.
0: Right. The state the state, the state does do its own ethnic. It. Right. Exactly. Exactly.
2: <laughs> no, if they're if they're in camps, we don't need. Right. It's...
0: But I think Anand would be a great person to talk about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Different types of nationalisms in the two countries. He's also been there during the rise. Of, you know, during Xi Jinping's time.
2: Yeah, for sure. So Anand, I'll let me I'll turn to you for that.
3: Yeah. Um, you know, I think that. Perhaps I don't know. One thing that I would suggest, Kaiser, is probably just the different political systems. The fact that in India there's so, so many avenues for expression of these sentiments, which are are limited in China. But more than that, I think even uh, I think the coming back to the caste and religion question. I think you asked the question if if this religion, if religion is holding India back. I'd say more than that. I'd say it's the politics that's holding India back because the political system needs uh, caste identities. Uh, it needs religious identities. It thrives on that. You'd be shocked if you watch any Indian news channel on election day. As I was unfortunately watching two days ago in Bihar, it's open that ex-party will field ex-candidate in a particular constituency just because of a caste arithmetic. It happens in every election, and it's open. and And so, political parties need to keep those identities alive and going. It's in their interest to do that. So, I, I look at it as a political problem completely. Even with the Hinduism and the redefinition of Hinduism that's going on in India, as Pallavi said, I grew up uh, familiar to a different kind of Hinduism, which she she kind of uh, encapsulated in terms of being liberal, uh, in terms of having this plethora of gods, you choose which one that you liked uh, for any reason. Um, There was no official textbook, there is no official textbook but there's been a move to change all of that because having a religion that's so flexible is no good if it comes to mobilizing people uh it doesn't it doesn't serve doesn't serve a political use so i think that it's the politics that's driving this sort of regressive interpretations of caste and religion in india more than anything else uh, and for me that's that's what's terribly unfortunate uh and in terms of uh comparing the two i think they're quite similar in many ways uh, even if you don't have the religious component, there is a kind of ethnic component, I would say. Uh, I think the fact that there are some similar strands that I find so striking when I'm in India uh, and some of the online reactions that you see in India remind me so much of what I would see in China as well in terms of their similar disdain for, for example, uh, journalists, especially if, you, if, you're, if you're from the New York Times, I think you have an equal number of uh, critics in india and in china the idea that uh, the idea that both countries are these unique civilizational states uh, who've been oppressed by the rest of the world and they and they aren't given their due the sense of resentment uh, that's driving this impulse in both countries so i see a lot of similarities actually which is which isn't a, which isn't a good thing because when it comes to the relationship it just makes things uh, so much harder when you in, in dealing with so many of the legacy issues uh, than it was even 15, 20 years ago. I think the window has passed. For, unfortunately, I think the window has passed uh, for India and China to resolve some of those issues. So it leaves me quite pessimistic in, in, in the way things are going because it's just become so much harder to deal with these things uh, than it was in the past when there's so much of sentiment now magnified by things like social media.
1: So um, if we can bring it back to uh, the narcissistic country in which uh, um, Kaiser and I live, Uh, the U.S. election saw the first woman, the first black person and the first person of Indian uh, heritage get elected to the vice presidency the region of Tamil Nadu where Kamala Harris's mother is originally from has been celebrating her and claiming her as one of their own. Um, Pallavi, I, you remarked to us when we were preparing for this conversation that the very same people s- celebrating Kamala Harris also decried Sonia Gandhi, who was not born to an Indian family but was naturalized uh, as uh, she was Italian. Uh, can you explain this uh, contradiction does it def- or does it just defy explanation?
0: Yeah, yeah, this is, I'm not sure I can explain it. I'm not sure I can explain it, but I can elaborate on it. Uh, it's uh, it's certainly uh, you know one um, of these great Indian hypocrisies uh, where we have a tendency to always claim Indians abroad as our own when they do great things. Yeah. So the moment an Indian becomes vice president of uh, some country, not some kind of, of the United States of America, you know, wins the Booker Prize, gets the Nobel Prize, suddenly it's like rah rah Indian. <laughs> Sounds the familiar.
2: Nobel Prize. Chinese do the same thing. Indian
0: <laughs> becomes vice. president. President Indian, you know, the Indian is kind of stretched, uh, stressed up front and center, but, you know, for most people who leave, Indi- who, leave, who leave India and go abroad, I mean, India wants nothing to do with them. For example, um, uh, you know, we don't even allow dual citizenship. And the idea behind that is that once you uh, live in another country, you've kind of left India, you've forsaken India, you've gone, go back to that country. Now that's where your loyalties lie. So, you know, there's a great um, hypocrisy in this. Uh, Sonia Gandhi, like like we mentioned earlier, will forever be foreign for the same brand of Indian who cheer the fact that Kamala Harris became uh, Uh, vice president in the United States. You see this in sports very often, you know, like if you have these cricket games, for example, um, if uh, Indian Muslims, uh, you know, cheer for any other team, Pakistan or any other team, then of course, they're great traitors to the country. But when you've got Indians, uh, British Indians, for example, sitting in London cheering for the Indian cricket team versus England, that's perfectly natural because after all, they are Indian. So, you know, there is this kind of uh, contradiction, hypocrisy at the heart of many things, Uh, I guess Yes, it's also just part of human nature. I don't know that this multiplicity of identities is somehow suddenly welcome when you are abroad. You know, you can be American, but also Indian when you've done great things. But at home, there is a policing of those same identities to kind of fit within a narrow nationalistic um, ideal.
2: Let's talk about COVID-19 and how India has processed the whole pandemic Uh, from China's early response. Uh, to its later relative success in controlling the spread of the virus. I mean, what can you tell us about how India is is talking about China and COVID-19? An- Ananth,
3: Yeah, no, I'm happy to weigh in on this uh, because I've been... Uh- so I was in Beijing in January when, um, so we went to Beijing on holiday, uh, completely unaware of the fact that all of this was happening in Wuhan. So we were there literally eight days, uh, before Zhongnan Chan went on TV and said, listen, it's, you know, it's a situation is serious. So we, and I, it was remarkable to see firsthand, uh, when I was there for the, for the couple of weeks that I was there, the way the city kind of just shut down and got its act together. Uh, and then we, uh, then I flew to India. This was, I, said, I think early February, right? Uh, coming from the situation where we were masked up and so worried. And then I landed in, in Chennai Airport, and they just like waved me through. Uh, and uh, no one even bothered to check my temperature. I was like, can you please check my temperature and, and write it down? Because I didn't want to have an issue later. But then it, it seemed that no one was bothered until uh, February, March, because there was this, I think, similar to the US, for some reason, there was this notion that this kind of stuff happens over there. Uh, and it's not going to happen in India for whatever reason. Uh, and the funny thing is that, uh, obviously, I think for China, it's been kind of like a, as you say in football, a game of two halves, where the first part of it was botched completely in Wuhan. No doubt about that. Uh, I think through December and January. But the fact that I think since March, uh, that they've been able to get it under control at home, nobody here believes that. No one where I'm sitting in India believes that, uh, you know, local transmission in China is under control, uh, and I think that, uh, when I mentioned to people that I'm supposed to go back to Beijing, people are like, are you crazy? Why would you go back there? Uh, the people here, be- pe- I think the majority of people here believe that there's a huge outbreak going on in China at this very moment <laughs> that's being suppressed. So I think that people have been very skeptical right from the uh, get-go of uh, how China has dealt with it, uh, which, which I found uh, quite interesting. And to me, it kind of hints at the larger mistrust that people have, which I think is, it's historical. I think it goes back to, to the sixties is, is what I argue in the book that unless you come to terms with, with the history, this is going to repeat itself. Because I think there's the gut reflects, I think for many people in India is if something is happening in China, it's probably not true, uh, and, and don't believe it. Uh, but I think on the flip side of that is, uh, I don't know. I think it's the same question people in the US are asking. If we were paying attention to what was happening there in January, would we have reacted better? I mean, even if China did suppress uh, the handling of the outbreak uh, in December and early January, I mean, when a country of 1.4 billion people locks down as they did in January 23rd, surely that's a sign that something big is happening. But people weren't paying attention to it. Uh, And and to me, it really said a lot about how we how we look at China as well. Same problem over here in the United States, I have to say.
1: Um, Anand, you've said before uh, that you think this year, 2020, this anus horribilis for pretty much everyone around the globe will, will, but uh, as far as the India-China relationship, you think it will go down as a major inflection point, uh, that it marks uh, the beginning of a a much more confrontational relationship driven by nationalism and other forces. Can you talk about what's driving the decline?
3: I believe that, Jeremy, and I think that uh, when you look back at the relationship uh, I mean, some of the years that really uh, come to mind are the war in 62, the the normalization that began in 1988. Uh, and I mean, some of the people that I know who've been following this relationship in India for decades uh, believe very strongly that 2020 is going to go down and the relationship is one such year. Uh, and I think some of this was happening even before uh, the boundary crisis began uh, in early May, which actually the Indian government played down uh, for more than a month um, until they were forced to confront it when you had this terrible incident that led to the first deaths uh, in since 1975. I think that, honestly, I don't know if we'll ever have a clear answer for why uh, China took the step that it did in early May to to deploy two divisions and try and unilaterally uh, redraw the line of actual control. Uh, frankly, I think we spent too much time trying to guess the motivations, uh, which we may never know. I mean, people are still debating why Mao Zedong went to war in 62, and there's no agreement whether it was because of Tibet or whether it was to teach Nehru a lesson or something else. But I think that for whatever reason, um, I think that the leadership in China has come to the view that this relationship wasn't worth preserving, which is why that uh, they were willing to take the step, uh, regardless of the fallout that it would have, uh, and it's really called into question the, the I think for me, the founding sort of premise of this relationship, which is you have historical problems, you have legacy issues, but you compartmentalize them, you put them to the side and you try to find places to work together, whether it's on trade or climate change or what have you. But I think the Indian government has, has come to the view now that that's no longer possible, which is why they've been taking all these steps uh, in curtailing Chinese investment, banning Chinese apps. And I think that the boundary is going to be front and center again for the first time in many, many years. Uh, And for me, that's not a good thing at all. Uh, And that means that the relationship is going to be more confrontational. Uh, I think that the days of trying to compartmentalize are over. And so I think for people who are invested in this relationship, whether it was in education, wanted more two-way travel or in business ties, I think it's going to be a very difficult uh, period going forward with, I think, the current leadership in in both countries. So we we have time for just one really
1: quick answer, I think, Kaiser. Um, Pallavi, so has the spirit of Sini Hindi bye-bye really gone bye-bye? Or do you think there's still any kind of foundation for mutual understanding?
0: so i think you know the chini hindi bye bye went through three different iterations so you had the chini hindi bye bye of the 1940s 50s the post colonial uh, uh, camaraderie of panasianism and so on i do think that in the early 2000s when i was in china we went through another iteration which was chini hindi chini bye bye where economics was actually driving uh, was B-U-Y, the
2: driving buy force. buy
0: right B-U-Y, B-U-Y.
2: <laughs> and we saw sort trade
0: of um, sort of you know grow Growing exponentially uh, every year, we had a doubling and tripling. And as Anand said, there was a consensus that the border issue should be kept on the back burner. And I think the official language was that it's a problem left over by history, and you know that's that that's what it is. Um, and now we're again seeing bye bye, as you very um, clearly pointed out, with the border coming very strongly back. Um, uh, you, uh, in the center of um, the bilateral relationship. So um, yeah, I mean, I think the buy buy is tampered down, like the buy bu is tampered down by the, uh, is, is tampered by the growing trade deficit as well between India and China, which uh, in the earlier part of this millennium was far more equal. Um, and, and now we've seen this resurgence of um, sort of strategic competition and, and the military kind of coming back into the equation as well. So it's indeed worrying times
2: and the idea of betrayal never really kind of going away um yeah that's that's a grim prognosis i i'm, I'm afraid i, I I I hate ending yeah. a show on anything quite that. So, come on, surely there's there's some.
1: <laughs> oh, get, uh, Kaiser, you eternal American optimist! Forget about it. Right, right. Things can always get worse, as I never cease telling there's
0: you. There's a lot of Indian yoga teachers. There's a lot of Indian yoga teachers in uh, in China at the moment. So okay. I don't know. There's if that's a- Go <laughs> yoga teachers. <laughs>
2: Uh, so I mean, if we can actually yeah. a new foundation based on bilingual puns, yoga teachers, and I, I'm seeing a growing fondness among my Chinese friends for Indian food. So maybe that that's and yeah, yeah.
0: Indian restaurants, yeah, exactly. absolutely. And the Chinese food has always been not not Chinese yeah, Chinese not food from China, but Indianized Chinese food has always been hugely popular.
2: Manchurian uh, chicken. My, well,
0: my, the, the original <laughs> title for my first book, Smoke and Mirrors, uh, was going to be Paneer Manchurian. Uh, <laughs> but then my publisher thought it sounded too much like a food memoir. Uh, and so we called it Smoke and Mirrors, uh, so somewhat more boringly, I think. But yes, paneer, paneer, the Manchurian is this thing that was invented in Bombay and which signifies uh, Chinese food for the average Indian that when they think Chinese food, that's It's what
3: the they chop suey of Something India, basically. Manchuria. There's a great story of when uh, Hu Jintao went to India in 2006 and they scoured Delhi and Bombay to find, like, you know, the most authentic ch- Chinese chef that they could find. So they flew him into Delhi, had him prepare this fantastic meal, authentic Chinese food, and they served it to Hu Jintao, at the end of which I think the the Indian side asked, you know, uh, what did you make of the of the, of the meal? And then and President Hu was like, you know, so it's the first time I've had Indian food, so I'm really, really happy. <laughs> that was what he said. <laughs> 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 so, okay, okay,
2: we can end there that's a great one thank you everyone thank you so much to Catherine and to Joe and to all the other great people uh, at the Hong Kong International Liter- Literary Festival uh, for inviting us thank you so much Anath it was so great to see you and Pallavi wow wonderful to, to catch up with yeah, like this yeah even
1: if just online great to
0: see absolutely. you both absolutely thank you for having us
2: Jeremy, yeah. as always, yes. I, I uh, Well, we'll see you on, on, well, we see each other all the time on social media, but uh, I, I I miss you guys and hope that we can all reunite one day in Beijing. Thank you
3: so much, Kaiser, Jeremy, Pallavi, and hope that happens soon. Thanks, Thanks Pallavi. Thank you, everyone. Take care, Take
2: care everyone. All righty. Bye-bye. The Seneca Podcast is powered by China and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.